Welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott, and I spent the first series of this podcast laying out the basic toolkit that we think is essential to making conscious evolution a possibility, which is the entire premise behind the Accidental Gods project, behind this podcast, the website, and the membership portal that lies behind it. Since then, we've been exploring that extraordinary, lively, inspiring intersection where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, science meets spirituality, and from which we hope to craft a vision of a future that is generative for all of us, for the human and the more-than-human worlds. My guest this week is someone who spends her life helping others to craft their visions of a soul-filled future. Jill Coombs is a coach and facilitator, an author of three life-changing books, and an activist. She has stood as the parliamentary candidate for the Green Party and was arrested twice in the Extinction Rebellion actions of 2019. She's part of XR's Visioning Circle, and she works with the team at Embercombe, helping to keep that vision alive too. Jill and I first recorded a version of this podcast back in August. But we had some technical difficulties with the sound, so we decided we would give it another go rather than inflict that on you. So for round two, people of the podcast, please welcome Jill Coombs. So Jill Coombs, on our second attempt, welcome to Accidental Gods podcast. Thank you. All our sound sounds much better this time. And I gather in your amazing and inspiring peripatetic lifestyle, you're somewhere else. Where are you in the world just now? So I'm now in the Cotswolds and a little hamlet called Betty's Grave. And I'm looking out on a very beautiful oak tree, which is just starting to look, look autumnal and watching 10 chickens scratching. Oh, magic. Mm. Oh, fantastic. It is autumnal. And we're recording in August. It's been a very, very strange year. Because, yes, it definitely feels like autumn out there. And Betty's Grave, is, is does Betty have a grave there? Well... As much as I can find out is that Betty was indeed a woman who lived here and died and is buried here, but the rumours range from all sorts of things as to from being a a cuckold to a witch to a gossip to who knows what. So, um, yeah, Betty, bless her, I don't know what her story was, but her grave (laughs) is She was probably an entirely wonderful human being who just fell out with her own people. Um, Oh, right. So it's going to be our life's task to find out about Betty and rehabilitate her at some point. (laughs) But in the meantime, um, thank you. Thank you for taking a second bite. And what I would really like to do to introduce people who didn't hear all of our first podcast is a little bit of an exploration of your intriguing and actually very unique childhood leading up to you going to Schumacher College, which is going to be our main leaping off point. Mm -hmm. But tell us about the village in Norfolk. And your early experiences. Ah, yeah, well, my, the village in Norfolk, Felthorpe, which is just north of Norwich, is uh, where I lived with my parents and my brother for the first six years of my life. 
And for the first four and a half of those years, I didn't meet other children. So um, uh, I was with my family, but also spent a lot of time out in the garden, in the woods, out across the fields, really developing a relationship with all the other living beings around me. And then when I met children when I was four and a half, nearly five, it was quite a shock. I didn't really know what yes. to do with them, how to, yes. how to be with them. So uh, life has felt like a bit of a catch up in some ways. And, and have we ever established what what your parents thought was a good idea for you never to know that other children existed for the first four and a half years of your life? I think there's something Bill Plotkin writes about the uh, the nest and the importance of having the nest as a kind of a safe place to grow innocence and wonder. Okay. So I think they may have been doing that, but in overdrive. <laughs> Do you think they'd read Bill Plotkin? Was he writing? No, definitely not. I imagine it was something quite instinctive, you know, seeing uh, something, things that were happening in the world and wanting to keep their children just preserved from that as long as they possibly could. Okay. Yeah, no, that sounds quite sensible, actually, in many ways. In some ways, ways, yes. You know, it means there's some catching up to do. And as I've worked with people for a lot of my adult life, it meant I had to do quite a lot of catching up. Sometimes I feel like I'm still doing it. (laughs) Yes, Yes, but I sometimes in the circles that we run ask people to hold their hands up if they don't feel like yeah. they don't quite fit. Yeah. And nobody, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's it, everybody feels like they don't quite fit. I'm sure not many of us had quite that childhood beginning, but mm. we each managed to make ourselves not fit in new ways. And then you went off and you were riding. You were you you worked with horses and I have to say this is my dream job and I'm amazed that you're not still working with horses. <laughs> but um you did that for a while and then you began what sounds like quite a journey. So if you could kind of pricey for us your journey from leaving school to getting to Schumacher. Mm, okay, so it's a journey that spans quite a few years. So, well, I'll see if I can get it into a bit of a nutshell. So after working with horses for several years, which was just one, just bliss uh, uh, in many ways. And then uh, after a few years of that, I saw my friends going out, meeting boys, driving cars, going to the pub and having clothes and things. And um, there was a part of me just that wanted to do that. There was a part of me that wanted to uh, be part of that peer group and just start living a, what I saw as then probably a normal life. So uh, yes. I got a job in admin. I was actually a purchase ledger clerk with an electrical wholesalers. And I remember on the first few days, I remember asking my new colleagues, are there any fields around here where I can go for a walk at lunchtime? And they all looked at me as if I was absolutely crazy, as if I just suggested the oddest thing. Whereas for me, yes. it was the most natural and grounding thing to do, especially you know in this new environment. And that really came carried on being the case, I suppose, for the next (laughs) quite some time. So uh, having left admin, well, it took me into all sorts of roles and I tried all sorts of things, really not knowing, really not knowing uh, what I could do, what work I could do that would be fulfilling, uh, that Mm. would stretch me, that I would enjoy, you know, all of those things. Trying all sorts of different things like uh, uh, one day, as I think I've told you before, one day of steel fixing on a sewage works near Swindon. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I still find that because um, you know, go and look at Jill's picture on on the website because steel fixing involved carrying iron bars around, and I'm still intrigued that somebody gave you that job because you don't look huge and well muscled in the way that I would imagine you'd need to be to I be carrying iron bars things. around. <laughs> I was reasonably strong. Because I've been working with horses and been chucking bales of hair around and mucking yeah, around, yeah, things, moving things like that. barrows so, of 
Yeah, exactly yes. that. So I was reasonably strong, but certainly I, one day was all I could cope with, you know. So, <laughs> and, uh, and so not just the, the weight of them, but the abrasions on the shoulders as well, where I was carrying them, the ripped open skin and my skin on my oh, fingers God. broken open from twisting wire around and the ends of them and to fix them in. So uh, yeah. and I, I got home and well, I could have slept for a week, uh, <laughs> but I didn't go back. And I think we all knew that was a good idea. Yeah, and some some other poor person ended up doing that. That's the interesting thing, and it might not have been terribly fulfilling for them either. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. So, uh, and it may have been somebody's ideal work, but it's certain, you know, like a lot of the jobs I did, they certainly weren't my ideal work, and I wasn't mm. terribly good at them, and I didn't particularly enjoy them. But for other people, of course, that's you know, it's great. It's exactly right for them. Yeah, although I'm aware that David Graeber wrote a brilliant book on bullshit jobs, which are the jobs that basically. It, they're never going to be fulfilling for anybody. Yeah, there really. are those jobs too. Um, I have yeah. to say, Purchase Ledger Clark sounds pretty close <laughs> to that to me. <laughs> I'm in awe that you went from moving bales of hay and working with horses to to something that I wouldn't last 10 minutes because I'd get the numbers wrong. <laughs> anyway, so we're still, the key to this is searching for a life of meaning and uh-huh. purpose and fulfillment. Mm. And... And I'm really very impressed with your ability to keep searching for that. When a lot of people, I think, do settle for the bullshit jobs because they give them enough money to have, I don't know, the the car and and the holidays in wherever and the right clothes. And you didn't. You no. kept searching. Yeah, I guess there's, although I was uh, seduced and intrigued by those things for a while, they've never been what's at the bottom of my life, uh, which has been a deep love for the natural world. And also uh, uh, meaning, a kind of sense of meaning and purpose has always been very important to me. So, um, you know, I did have some fun in my early 20s, but uh, it was far from fulfilling. And I'd had a feeling that there was something that I should be good at and should want to do. And I just couldn't find it. You know, I tried all sorts of things. And then uh, eventually when my marriage broke up, I went to have a few sessions with a counsellor and uh, rather very arrogantly, actually, with hindsight, um, uh, kind of noticed what she was doing and how she was working. And I thought, you know, I think I could do that. And I think I could probably do it better than you can. Hmm. (laughs) And so uh, I went to, uh, I looked up from the um, paper brochures that you used to get from the local college and found a counselling skills course. And that was it. You know, I went on a fundamental mm. skills course for 13 weeks and then committed to three years of studying, having found, you know, realising realizing quite quickly that I would need to do an awful lot of work to get anywhere near as skillful as uh, my counsellor was. Uh, but then, uh, <laughs> but committed to training for three years, whereas previously, well, committing to something for three weeks would have been unusual. Okay. Right. And so it spoke to something that was that sense of meaning and purpose, Uh I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Meaning, purpose and the kind of almost like the juicy emotional bit, which had probably been missing for me in the uh, family where I grew up, who are a lovely family and nurturing family in many other ways. But doing that really kind of getting into the edgy, juicy emotional stuff Mm. was something that uh, I hadn't experienced and didn't really know was possible. Uh, And also discovering that I could be responsible for my own life and outcomes in a way that I hadn't really thought possible before, um, which was really empowering. So I think a combination of both of those, um, yeah. Yes, because I don't know many families, certainly of our era, 
that did go in for the juicy emotional bits. Mm-hmm. I think I see more now younger people who have been brought up by people who've done the therapy and their children now are being brought up very emotionally literate. Yeah. But I don't think our generation, I don't think our parents' generation would have known how to do that, most of them. No, I remember my tutor, really lovely therapy tutor called Jan Moisa, and I remember her saying that that was the silent generation. Uh, I think there was right. something about that. More so than their parents, do you think? More so than their parents. Well, I don't know. It's interesting, isn't it? I don't know. I'm, I, my feeling, and, and I don't know where this arises, and it could easily be wrong, is that the silence, the, the not speaking our pain goes back many, many, many generations. Mm. Because mm. men were burdened with, you have to protect and provide, even mm. if you hate what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And women were left with the rest. And, mm. and I don't think either side of that mm. contract was fun for quite a long way back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, anyway, and as you're saying that, that, I'm thinking about how we've, as a species, kind of split off from from soul and intuition and emotion and how, you know, how the rational mind sort of took over. Uh, and all of that territory was really kind of splintered off, wasn't it? It's like, well, we don't talk about that. We kind of acknowledge that it might go on somewhere in a dark corner, but we don't really name it. And we certainly don't, you know, do it in public. <laughs> yeah. And we can go back to the Romans and see that pattern. Uh-huh. And the Greeks in their writing, there wasn't a great deal of, let's let's sit down and explore how we feel about what we're doing to our slaves or mm-hmm. our women or our children. I was reading your book, one of your books last night, and it felt to me that you are edging towards an understanding of, of the, that piece of the puzzle of how far back does our wounding go and therefore the depths of the healing that we need to do in our generation in order that we can all find the life that is flourishing and healed and mm. regenerative mm. And, and feeds us in the ways that you were hunting for. Mm, yes, yeah, absolutely. And I'm blown away by what I see with the uh, with young people now, you know, you're talking about this next generation who have grown up in uh, with more emotional uh, self-awareness and, and mm. articulate as well, you know, yes. articulate, aware and able to kind of cut through the the bullshit or the kind of stupor yes. that's kind of hung around with all of that, you know, the what the violence has oppressed is just shooting up again, you know, it's almost like a rewilded patch of ground where yeah. as soon as that oppression or violence, if you like, is removed from it, up come all these beautiful things that were just waiting to emerge. Yes. Yes, and if we can just hold the world together for that generation to to be able to step forward and go, okay, it's okay, guys, now we will take over. Um, and I don't wish to pass all responsibility to them, but I do want mm. us to be able to have held the space uh-huh. well enough that uh-huh. there's a world there to do it. Yeah. So, so in your search for this, for the juicy emotional bit and for the sense of being responsible for our own life and outcomes, mm. you did your counselling and... I think you did therapeutic counselling. Mm-hmm, which That's right. What's the difference between therapy, counselling and therapeutic counselling? <laughs> well, the short answer. So therapy goes deeper and further back, I guess, into trauma, uh, addiction uh, and kind of on the verge of, well, uh, men, what we, we might call mental illness, uh, clinical mental mm-hmm. illness. Uh, whereas counselling is tends to be more kind of uh, emotional problem solving, if you like, and therapeutic counselling is somewhere between the two. So there okay. is an ability to 
uh, hold some powerful emotion and emotional process and be able to accompany somebody through that territory. And there is uh, there's a need to be able to do that work kind of clearly to have some self-knowledge and to have uh, met our own demons as well. Yeah. Yeah, but you can also do the kind of band-aid, let's just fix this crisis in the moment as well without demanding that we go back and and talk about your mother for the next six months. Yeah. Okay, sounds great. So, So where did that lead you to? Well, I uh, finished my training and immediately didn't practice <laughs> because I was working for, I was actually working for Nestle at the time. And I was so unaware uh, when I think back, you know, we were just talking about today's young people. I had very, very little awareness of uh, much at all, really, outside my own kind of sphere. You know, I'd, mm. um, I'd read a lot, but nothing that had led me in the direction of recognizing uh, the damage that big corporations inflict both on people, you know, physically and the mm. soul and on the land. You know, they're not yeah. all entirely bad, but, you know, it's uh, one of these caveats. <laughs> but, and, and they do yeah. a lot of harm. So anyway, there I was working for Nestle at the time doing one of my admin roles. And um, I got into an investors in people process, actually, which sort of led me into learning and development development and uh, found myself working with groups on um, communication skills and uh, presentation skills and things like that. And uh, having worked with horses, you know, kind of taking groups out on lessons and hacks, you know, I had already discovered that I could work with groups. Mm. And so I found myself doing this, but, you know, and almost like in a reinvention, so not with horses anymore, but with this juicy material uh, which in, a, in an organisational setting is different, of course, than in the therapeutic space, but draws on a lot of the same stuff. Yes. And, well, I just sort of fell in love with it. So, uh, And I did the work that I loved for several years, like Nestle for three years, and then Cheltenham and Gloucester, the big building society that's now part of Lloyd's DSB. And it wasn't really until I got to Cranfield University, uh, I was working on the campus where weapons are developed and driving into work every day past uh, a man or a woman some days holding a submachine gun and calling me mom as I came in. (laughs) And uh, something started, and this was about the time actually that um, something huge started shifting for me and I became aware of all sorts of possibilities. Uh, And one of those was, right, I don't want to dedicate my work anymore to stuff that I don't actually care about, you know, kind of end goals that I'm not invested in. Rather, I want to be doing it in service of what I love. Right. Which is the natural world and also the juiciness. Yeah, exactly both. Yeah. Uh-huh. And and is that what took you to Schumacher? Well, yes. In that, uh, I remember living at a lovely little place called Apple Tree Cottage and watching a documentary, a natural world documentary, which I often did. So I liked watching the wildlife, you know. But then uh, on came this guy called Satish Kumar, Mm. who I'd never heard of before, doing this wonderful documentary on Dartmoor called Earth Pilgrim. Yes. I was uh, so struck by the not just the phrases he was using, but the way in which he was using language to show that he really honoured what dart means and what more means and uh, uh, the word oak. And, and he was speaking about things as if they were alive and connected and with a respect in a way that I'd never really heard before. And like many other people, I think, uh, I heard this and saw this and thought, right, I, this is something I really want to dive into. So, yeah, so I found Schumacher College, uh, went on three short courses 
and spoke to some of the uh, holistic science students while I was there about what they were studying. Hmm. uh, I've been cooking an idea for quite some time about purpose and work. Um, And I think that, you know, often some of our greatest work comes from our deepest original or early wounds. And so having had a whole long journey of frustration and despair of not being able to find my skill or my purpose. It became quite a thing for me to understand that more fully about who and what we are in the world in terms of our work. And um, yeah, I wanted to write a book about it. So I did the MSc. Yes, for people who are listening around the world and don't know, Schumacher College is uh, on the Dartington Estate in Devon. It's in a very beautiful old building called the Old Postern that goes back many centuries. And the students on the the longer courses, holistic science, um, regenerative economics, things like that, come and live there for nine months, maybe a year. And it runs like an ashram. We get up in the morning and there's meditation space and then we have breakfast together in the huge dining room. And then some people will tidy up breakfast. Other people are making lunch under direction, I hasten to add. Um, Others are out in the garden with with the growers because it tries to grow everything as much as possible that, that we eat. And other people will be cleaning or preparing. And then we have class and then we come back and eat lunch and and clear up again and then we have more class and then we come back and eat dinner together. Anyway, so MSc in Holistic Science at Schumacher because you wanted to write a book and the book that arose out of it. Um, tell us tell us yeah. about that. So the book is, um, was, is Hearing Our Calling, uh, which is a kind of, it's roughly in three parts, I suppose. The first part looks at work and what work is. Um, I'm really kind of starting from the premise that for hundreds of thousands of years, work would have been whatever was needed to keep the community healthy and then as a bonus happy, you know, whether that's uh, pulling the thorn out of somebody's foot or preparing the next meal or finding shelter. Uh, The work would just be what needed to be done. And uh, whoever was best suited or best skilled for the work, whether it was tracking or preparing food or whatever, would just be stepping forward and doing it. Um, People would carry stuff together. Yes. And they would be honoured for being the best person and for doing it. I think that's quite important. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And when I think what's been lost... um, And there's a part of me that thinks we've done it to ourselves as a species. Hmm. And there's another part of me that thinks, and this has been stolen from us uh, without us even noticing, the ability to just do our best work and to offer it to our community and to be seen and recognized from that compared with the uh, anything from frustration to fear to despair to Mm. boredom, you know, depending on what jobs people are in. Uh, of um, yeah, what kind of feels a bit like paid slavery to put uh, to either put money in somebody else's pocket or to keep this yes. huge bureaucratic uh, set of cogs. Yes, and the paid slavery, I think it it does feel like an inherent part of the nature of the sea in which we currently swim is that it only ticks over because the system mm. is what it is because it does drag us away from the things that matter to us and then. And then tells us they don't really matter, and that what matters is the the money and the status and mm. the mm. the cars and the clothes and the holidays. But but I'm mm. thinking that what I saw in lockdown, mm. and and it hasn't completely been lost. We're in the UK. Lockdown has kind of dribbled to a sort of an end. Was people beginning to realise mm. that the paid slavery was exactly that, 
and finding more meaning. We we interviewed a lovely young man called Abel Pearson, yeah. who runs a regenerative farm in West Wales, and he said loads of people were volunteering, and and towards the end of lockdown, realised they did not want to go back to their office jobs. That that growing actual food on the actual land in a way that mm. was actually regenerative was far far more inspiring at every level than whatever paper they had been pushing at work. And I wonder, are you seeing that in the work that you're doing now? Yeah. Uh-huh. So so since 2010, basically, when I, w- I left my corporate career, uh, went and travelled around the country on foot and borrowed bike and public transport, and then... Uh, oh, oh, let's take a segue. Well... Uh, tell it, we need to know about that. Okay. So you, all right. So we can shelve that question. I'll ask it you again later. Okay. Um, tell us about your travelling around the country on foot. And bike. Like lots of people, I was inspired by Satish Kumar and his walk, and I wanted to do my pilgrimage. I wanted to do my walk. You better tell us about Satish's walk because not everybody will know he that. He walked from India to the four nuclear capitals of the world um, to, to with with a friend of his when he was twenty two to uh, speak to yeah. the four leaders and to uh, to ask them basically not to blow the world up. And he went completely... And because he was a Jain monk, wasn't he? he? Was. So he did it in a mendicant fashion of, yeah. of he took no money. Yeah. They took no money at all. Took, no, they? took nothing and just found food and shelter as they went. Um, yeah, extraordinary story. And this inspired so many people, uh, I know. And what it inspired me to do was to, uh, I want, you know, I, by then I had this burning passion to, it's like, right, I know I can work with groups. I know, you know, I, by then I trained as a coach as well. So I know I can work one-to-one with people to help them problem solve. Um, but I don't want to do this for you know mortgage mortgage sales or breakfast cereals. I want to do it for um, as we said earlier, you know what I love and feel passionate about. So mm. my starting point was to speak to Resurgence magazine and uh, tell them that I would like to go around the country just offering workshops uh, for people on living in harmony with uh, with the living world and with themselves and each other. Uh, and so people read about this in Resurgence and got in touch with me and invited me. And uh, wow. I went to some really lovely places, uh, met some extraordinary people and actually learned quite a lot uh, too. So so how far, I'm assuming you started in the South, did you did you go the kind of length and breadth of the land up to John O'Groats to Land's End and side to side or was it not as organised? Uh, it was a bit, it did work out pretty much that way. Uh, I went up the west and I went to Wales, lovely place near Llanid Lois and uh, then up through Cumbria and then on up to Scotland and then um, to the West Highlands. I uh, went to Glasgow. Alastair McIntosh is, well, very involved with a community called Galgale in <gasps> Glasgow, uh, where yes. a lot of shipbuilders who lost their jobs have been retraining in building wooden craft uh, and doing all kinds of other um, other crafts and food growing and things. So uh, I had an extraordinary experience of being there. You know, the whole thing was a bit of a a bit of an extraordinary experience, really, mm. with its highs and lows, but, you know, very high and very low. And then came back down the East Coast um, through Lincoln. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> what a way to meet people. It sounds great. And it was sometimes there were um, 30 or 40 people and sometimes there were just two or three. Um, yeah, it was a lovely yeah, exactly. In the workshops, yeah, that is. Yeah. yeah. Right. So that was Brilliant. that was quite an experience. And then from that, you know, I kind of 
had found myself having one-to-one conversations with people about their lives and what they might want to do next. So um, I thought, well, I don't want to go back to a corporate career now. So I carried on doing freelance work for a group of housing associations, uh, running workshops and, you know, doing all the things I did. Uh, which supported me in just going completely self-employed. And since then, I've been, I've had my own kind of private coach counselling practice because it sort of draws on both. It's around solutions and moving forward and taking positive steps, but it also kind of draws on emotional content as well. Uh, But with the main, what's probably the most unusual thing is that it has been since 2010 with the with the central focus of doing work that's good for the soul and good for the world. Right. And at what point in all of this did you write the book, Hearing Your Ah, uh, So the book, yeah, the dissertation I wrote in 2012 and the book I, I wrote probably sort of through 2013 and it was published in May 2014. Okay. And so... We started talking a little bit about that and the fact that it's in three parts. And what came out for me, you have your series of questions, which you Mm. talked about uh, in our podcast that didn't quite make it. Um, And I think they seem to me incredibly useful questions because I think a a lot of the people that I talk to, a lot of the Accidental God students, a lot of my dreaming students, a lot of the people that I meet, in other contexts, are this is the soul of what they're seeking, is finding what we might call their life's true path or their calling, something that makes their soul come alive. And that if we were able to open the doors so that everybody throughout oh. the world could find oh. their soul's true calling, our, our entire world would be a different place. Yeah, wouldn't it? Yeah. Probably the most important thing that any of us can do is to find our own true calling and then to help other people to find theirs. Mm-hmm. So can you speak, tell us the three questions possibly and then we can dive into them a little bit more deeply? Okay, so there are quite a few questions. I think the three that we talked about. Um, I, I can read day. them to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Okay, so the first one is what are you doing when you're in flow and time seems to disappear? So I think let's let's unpick that a little bit to begin with because okay, sure. that's going back to um, Csikszentmihalyi's ideas of flow and mm-hmm. what they are. So do you want to speak a little bit to that? Yeah, I guess it's the difference between, we all know days when we're clock watching, especially if we've done jobs which are drudgery, which we feel like to us, like wading in treacle because they're so far from our natural preference. And we know what it's like to kind of look at the clock and think, oh God, is that all the time is yet? Mm. How can it only be, I don't know, half past 11 or something? Uh, And how different that is from when we're engaged absorbed and there's a good level of kind of quality contact between us and whoever or whatever we're working with performing our own unique kind of alchemy where we get to a point in the den think is it that time already because we've been time just shifts and time just does something different and so that alone doesn't provide the answer of course but that often gives a clue to what kinds of things it is for us where time kind of takes on that different quality. And in your workshops, do you have strategies for people to recall these times or do you find that everybody just goes, oh yeah, it's when I'm woodworking or oh yes, it's when I'm gardening or, you know, playing with the ponies, whatever Uh, it is. Very easy. Yeah, and in one-to-one sessions, I might just invite somebody to close their eyes and take themselves to a time, you know, it's just it's, uh, take themselves to a time when that was happening. Okay. 
um, okay. and people access it very readily and easily. I find because it's uh, it's rich. <laughs> it's like, yeah. right, it's kind of uh, one of those rich moments that uh, that sit very accessibly uh, within us. Okay, but we're not always aware of it sitting there. That's the thing. It has to be has to be brought out. So for people listening mm. to take the time to sit, perhaps with a pen and paper or or a pad to mm. write on or something, mm. and just mm-hmm. free associate on the times when yeah. you've just lost track of time and been yeah. completely absorbed and come out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I'm guessing there's a component of come out of it and felt good about what was happening because I can be totally mm. absorbed and lose time when I'm grieving deeply, but it's not necessarily something <laughs> yeah. I want to do for the rest of yeah. my life. Yeah, so exactly. so we need the yes. coda of, of come out of it feeling inspired, I guess. Perhaps. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, I could go off down no, a let's, whole no, other... No, let's do it. I think that's interesting. Go on. Let's. Yes. So I'm thinking that sometimes our calling isn't the most joyful thing that we would necessarily be doing. I'm remembering, I don't know if you've read about my friend Glenn in the book, um, who, when he realized he had a real gift for public speaking and could really move and inspire yeah. people for his beloved ocean, uh, there was a part of him that did that very reluctantly because he would much be much rather somewhere wild and in the ocean than in right. uh, a room with a projector and a bunch of people. Yes. Yet he knew that, uh, that he and he was good at it and he did enjoy it, but it was it was tough for him to have to do it, and sometimes it was a struggle. But um, yeah, this is yeah. this is exactly what I wanted to get to was that there's a distinction to be had, and I'm guessing that that Glenn or somebody like that ends up with a balance of being on the ocean and that being utterly glorious and also mm-hmm. making the space and the time to do the public speaking, even if that's slightly harder, but that it yields, mm. I'm guessing, a different sense of fulfillment. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think so too. And one's just pure joy. Um, you know, um, you might uh, Glenn might lose himself kind of diving in the ocean or whatever, um, watching... Uh, fish or something mm. but uh yeah you, i guess it's a very and, that, and that's just a kind of a rapturous losing of time whereas the other is i get it's coming back to that a gestalt notion of a quality of contact where there's a contact between him and the audience that's feeding him and drawing the best you know for, i write quite a bit about this notion of evoking yes so although he might not like the idea of talking in front of a room of people once he starts to do it um the people evoke from him his best speaking self, which he quite enjoys being. Right. Um, yeah. And then uh, he evokes from them all sorts of, uh, you know, imagination and ideas and curiosity where they go off then uh, and we hope engage with the ocean in a slightly different way. Yeah. So it's about finding that place within ourselves where we then reach out to others singly or in groups and between us we create a third thing that is greater uh-huh. than the sum of yeah, its parts, lovely. I think, isn't it? Yeah, it's that sense lovely. of being part of something that is so synergistic. Mm. Yeah, that's a lovely way of describing it. That's exactly it. And I think I think for people, because I, I suppose I have one of my students that's coming to mind at the moment who also absolutely loves the ocean and she teaches school children to, mm. you know, dinghy sail and kayak on the west coast of Wales mm. and absolutely mm. loves it and I'm and is mm. definitely thriving in that moment. And I but it's again, mm. it's that sense of connectivity with other people mm. or with the living world. But it but having that mm-hmm. sense of creating mm-hmm. something that is greater than we create on our own, I think is feels yeah. to me quite important. Yeah. And that could be the living world too, you know, as a 
um, a difference between more extroverted personalities, you know, thinking about it in Jungian terms, the natural extroverts will be at their best and buzziest when they're engaging with others. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, introverts can potentially do that too, but will just feel more depleted by it and will uh, recharge and feel most restored and perhaps have the most profound experiences uh, connecting with nature yeah. or the aspects of themselves or something much more more solitary and deeper. Yes, so d- designing a rewilded garden or something that, that has <laughs> yeah, that sense exactly. of connectedness but doesn't require you to talk to large numbers of people. Yes, yeah. And and, uh, and this is the idea that's a, one of the ideas at the bottom of hearing our calling is that all of these approaches, different ways of being, different ways of engaging and interacting are are needed. Yes. They've all got something to contribute. You yes. know, I find it heartbreaking when uh, within various environmental or social justice, you know, campaign groups, people start arguing amongst themselves, it's all about this. And mm. then someone else says, no, it's all about that. And so much energy goes into each yes. of them really wanting to be heard yes. um, really wanting the others to go, oh, yeah, you're right. Whereas actually, of course, they're both right. Yes. It's all true. So uh, if we could all, you know, you mentioned earlier the idea of honoring somebody's work. Yeah. If, um, you know, even within the progressive movement already, if we can imagine the energy that might be liberated and nourished if people were to really honour each other's work, mm. even if it's very different and their approach is very different than their own, you know, what that might kind of support and bring forward. Yes, and what the honouring looks like. I think, for me, this the concept that is getting a lot of traction of universal basic income, and it has a great many difficulties that we don't need to go into now, but if we were to uncouple money from what we do with our time in a way that lockdown managed to do for quite a lot of people because because there was no way of earning income in the old way and some people found generative outlets for their time and their energy because at the moment the amount of money that we earn so often equates to our sense of self-worth and how we are valued by others. And then we end up yeah. in this bizarre situation where somebody who spends their life basically conning people out of money is earns you know bonuses in the multiples of millions. Yeah. And someone who spends their life nurturing people while they die in a hospice is on £10.26 an hour. And, yeah. and that's not how the world should be. <laughs> it just, it just no. isn't. And we need somehow to, to uncouple these. I saw a beautiful picture flipped past on my social media the other day of the students, I think, who were protesting the exam grades. Um, and, but somebody was holding up a placard going, how about we have a maximum wage? Yes! Right. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but you could feel the ripples going around of everybody going, oh, no, can't do that. Um, but imagine if we did, <laughs> you know, it would be very yeah. interesting. And then we could begin to value everything for its inherent value and not for the the slightly strange monetary values that we've put on it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I've, I wrote in hearing our calling about how you, you know you have the heart work and the hands work and the head work, yeah. and because the head work calls all the shots, you know, it's managed to make itself the highest pay. Yeah. Um, but we, you know, in the abstract world that we've constructed for ourselves, as moving money around and data around, you know, the fundamental jobs, and this is something that came clearly out of lockdown, didn't it? It's like the fundamental yeah. jobs are feeding people, tending people's health, yeah. growing food. Food, building shelter, you know, all these yeah. fundamental needs are the most important work that there is, yeah. you know, intending people's souls, you know, all of those things, yeah. they are the most important work. And yet they're the lowest paid. Yeah. It's completely upside down. Yeah. But, you know, 
It's only a system, and systems are open to change. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. I'm working on it. And we what are. is it, Margaret Wheatley, who said, never doubt that a small, committed group of citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. Yes, yes. And who was it? Oh, yes, it's uh, Mary Reynolds, yes, last, last podcast, said mm. we only needed a, a threshold of 3.14% of the population uh-huh. really committed to something to begin to change. I thought, that's the first three digits of pi. That's so exciting. <laughs> and I don't know where that number comes from, but it really, I find that very inspiring. So, and that's not huge, that's doable. And there's currently a movement, uh, hashtag 3.5%. Oh, is there? So there's currently a quite, I'm not sure where it's going to go yet, but it's in its early stages, but it's got a lot of energy. Mm. So uh, people might like to just check out that hashtag. Okay. Yeah, definitely. I'll I'll see if I can find it and link to it in the show notes, because it seems to me that Mm. in this past year, and I don't know whether it's Extinction Rebellion or Greta Thunberg or lockdown, but there are so many more people now utterly committed to changing the way things are, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, which has got to be a good thing. Okay, so the second of your three questions was, what do people tend to come to you for and seek you out for, brackets, whether you want it or not? Um, And that, again, seems to be one of those things that, with a bit of reflection, is, is going to yield a huge amount. So can you speak a little bit to how people might work with that? Yeah. So when I ask people to notice that, what do people tend to come to you for? It's something that, although it's not their paid work, or they might never have considered it as paid work, they might say, oh, well, people are always asking me for advice about their animals, or mm. people are often, I don't know, asking me, do you think you, you've got a good sense of clothes and style? Does this look good? Yeah. Or, you know, might I do this in my home? And and people just tend to know and be drawn, oh, yeah, that's a good person to ask about this. Yes. And uh, people don't necessarily think of it as something that they could be doing for their work. Because, you know, again, in this Western world that we've created for ourselves, it's like we haven't got the qualification or we didn't do the right exams or whatever, which is absolutely nothing to do with whether that's just an innate gift that people and the world are kind of asking, you know, that uh, uh, are asking us for to bring forward. Yes, yes. And I, I'm remembering a lecture I listened to recently by an, an extraordinary, a god amongst homeopaths. Um, and he said mm. that often he would ask people, what's your dream job? And it seems to me this is this is heading in roughly the same direction. He was describing a client he'd had who every time he would ask, you know, something along the lines of, what's your favorite X? Or what would you like to do under these? And, and it was always, well, on one hand this, or on the other hand that, or, or if we came at it from another angle this. And he was in despair because nothing was pinning down. But then he said, what's your dream job? And this person said, oh, it's easy. I would be a chair of a committee because I can see all of the angles and I can bring them all together and I can balance them all evenly. And when I go around and say, okay, so we've got this, 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 and this, and this are all the options. And these are the advantages and these are the disadvantages. Everybody listens to me. Lovely. And and it, it opened up the case for the homeopath. And I thought that's such a brilliant way of somebody understanding what their own gifts are. And then the question is just, okay, so in what way can we bring this to the world? Yeah, this, and, and that's just using the word dream. So rather than what job might you do or yeah. what are you qualified for or what do you think you're best at, using the word dream, how powerful is that? Yes, yes, actually. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, yeah. How can we dream this into being? 
Yeah. So one of those things that oh, it could never be possible, but if I could dream about it, then yeah. this is what I'd say. <laughs> yes. And and as we all know, human intent is one of the most powerful forces on the planet. And if you can dream it into being, it can happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, in a very powerful way. And so your third question is, what do you find yourself wondering why other people can't or don't do because it becomes so naturally to you? And again, I think that's just such a powerful, powerful question for people to ask themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And this, again, is a thing that somebody might not think of as their natural gift or even think about it as something they might do for work because it's just who I am, yeah. which, of course, is exactly what we're looking for. So yeah. uh, other people might think, why don't, why don't other people keep, you know, kind of their spaces clean and hygienic? Why don't other people you know, kind of, or why don't other people look at buildings in a way to see how things will fit together and yeah. kind of realize that this isn't going to work or, you know, whatever the thing might be. And this is a kind of, it's an alchemy thing. Mm. You know, our context just evokes from us uh, an ability to see what's needed. And, you know, obviously these skills all need honing and need developing. But at the, I believe at the fundamental level, you know, we've come into the world with an innate eye or a sense for a particular aspect or maybe more than one, you know, of our yeah. world that we can just see. We zoom in on the things that other people miss and we act, you know, we're uh, evoked or sort of called forth, if you like, uh, to act and actually do something. Um, yeah. Yes. But uh, a lot of people have lost that, you know, they might feel themselves called forth, but they don't respond because they won't get paid for it. Yes. As you said earlier, they haven't qualified in it. You know, they haven't got the recognition of their community. You know, it could be all yeah. sorts of things. And I'm wondering also with the creation of unemployment as a weapon by the mm. neoliberal state, and that mm. label then, I remember reading a paper, I think while I was at Schumacher, about the mm. transformation in people when they ceased to be unemployed and instead became retired. And mm. the income that they got from the state was very broadly similar. But the label that was mm. put on it, one was a pension and one was mm. unemployment benefit. And and that that made a structural change in how they felt about themselves. And I thought the damage that has been done generation after generation of saying, you are not fit to do anything. We have no mm. space for you in our world. Therefore, you are useless. It's, it's so damaging. And Rob Hopkins talks about this in his amazing book, From What Is to What If, of talking mm, to people yeah. at a, I think it was in Dumfries in Scotland, where they were being offered the space to develop skills that they didn't know they had and discover what uh -huh. they could do. And I, I think so much of the healing that we need now in our world is to to bring that into being, get rid of the labels yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and, as you say, help people to act and do things. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, lot, there's a lot of working out of it to do. There are many ways which involve all sorts of communication skills and emotional intelligence and self-awareness and self-restraint and tact. And, yeah. you know, all of this yeah. comes into being, doesn't it, and comes into play. It's the piece that we were talking about earlier that young people seem to be uh, really great at, actually, in a way that we perhaps had to learn because we didn't get it you know, from the generation above us. Yes, yes. And I guess there's also something about evolving into the new skills, because I'm thinking that in the generation I grew up in, there were a lot of young men who might have been quite displaced had computing not come along and their particular mm -hmm. set of skills that led them to be mm -hmm. absolutely genius programmers mm -hmm. was, was suddenly incredibly valuable. And I'm remembering yeah. listening to a podcast with Jamie Wheel, I think, talking about his 12-year-old daughter 
And he's an entrepreneur. He's set up numerous businesses and he offered her an amount of money, I'm guessing quite a, a reasonable amount that would be valuable to her, if she would like to bring seven of her friends together over the summer holidays and build something on Minecraft, which was her, mm-hmm. her game of the time mm-hmm. that no one had mm-hmm. ever seen before. And he said mm-hmm. within a day, she had seven friends from all around the world. She'd never met them, but they were all geared up to do this. And then he watched all summer and she just played Minecraft. And it got to the last <laughs> week of the summer holidays and he went, yeah, were, were, you, were you think you're doing this thing or is it, is it just, <laughs> you know, didn't want to do it? And she went, oh yeah. No problem. And within that last week, he said he saw a level of connectivity and cooperation that he has never experienced in even in the best coached, most emotionally literate, most self-aware groups that he's had in his, mm. I'm guessing, quite self-aware. He does. Mm. Yeah, he, he runs whole courses on how to be a superstar. Mm-hmm. Um, and And people one last decided to write the manual and somebody else did the basic designs and somebody else made it happen and somebody else made it look beautiful. And he said by the end of five days, they had created something that not only had he never seen before, he could never have imagined existing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And in a way that he had never seen before. And he didn't even want to put words to it because he said that would limit it by his capacity mm-hmm. to create language and that they had achieved something that was beyond that. And I thought that gives such hope for the world. Yeah, doesn't it? That in the chaos of all that we're doing, we have also created the capacity where that can happen. Uh-huh. And and helping people to realize Beautiful. that the gifts that they have, and if we can reach a place where we speak about money in a way that it really doesn't matter anymore, yeah. where people, yeah. where the abundance is enough and the not mm-hmm. damaging the natural world is an inherent mm. part of what we're doing. And people can then find what it is that they want to do and what they're built to do, what they're here to do. The world would be such an amazing place. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. We're living in extreme, it's a bit of a cliche, but extremely exciting times, you know, as well as terrifying times. You know, it's uh, it's both, isn't it? And it's uh, holding those in balance, really, is yeah. that uh, we're faced with some extraordinary crises. But my goodness, you could almost see it in a huge kind of holistic level of here's now this big crisis and this really big threat. And look what humanity's doing in response. Yes. Yes. Something really beautiful and amazing. Yes, meeting up to it. And so coming forward from finding our calling, and I think anyone out there who's who is seeking ideas of how to be, it's a, it's an extraordinarily beautiful book and it's full of the sorts of things we've been talking about. In terms of the work that you're doing with people out in the world, are you finding that people are coming to you with different sets of ideas now of who they could be and what they could be doing? Is that, is that shifting? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In the last, I guess, two years, and as you said earlier, there's been Greta Thunberg and Extinction Rebellion and many others. I think they've just been the, the visible, if you like, manifestations of a huge shift that's been going on where, you know, of course, David Attenborough said his piece about the destruction of the natural world. Mm. And uh, I think in the last two years, so many people have woken up to what's actually uh, has been going on uh, environmentally, politically, in society. And uh, there's a real thirst, there's a real appetite for something new. Uh, In my work, coaching work just five or six years ago, 
uh, I ran a coaching seminar at a conference, which was about coaching in service of the greater good. You know, who are we in service of? Are we mm. in service of the client or the organization they're working for or something beyond that? And at that time, it was a totally alien concept and people kept coming back to, well, it's in the contracting and who's paying <laughs> oh you gosh. and you know, questions like that. And yet now I think if I was to walk into that group, you know, the same people yeah. six years on, yeah. uh, I think they would absolutely uh, resonate with where I was coming from and we'd uh, we'd do something very different with that. Brilliant. So, uh, in fact, an organization that I'm in- engaged with called Recipro Coach yeah. uh, is just doing a program at the moment where coaches have been uh, invited to do free coaching for environmental activists. That certainly right. wouldn't have happened even three years ago. Oh, brilliant. That sounds amazing. We can maybe put a link to that into mm-hmm. into the show notes as well. Mm. Fantastic. So we're nearing the end of our hour. And as I'd hoped, we've explored a lot of hearing our calling and how people can do it. So I'm guessing that if we were leaving people with things they could do other than reading the book, then then asking themselves the three questions would be would be obvious. And I'm wondering if there's anything else as a final suggestion that you would like to put out into the world on this topic. So there's something about being willing to take risks. There's something about the illusion of stability and security that jobs and organizations seem to offer that appears to be unraveling before our eyes. Uh, And often people, I'm thinking about the many questions or the many kind of dilemmas that people come with. And very often they're kind of on the brink and saying, I feel really scared of doing this, or I don't want to jump, or I don't know if I can do it. Uh, And whilst some caution is, of course, good, uh, some sensible eyes open caution is good. Uh, I find myself often reminding people that, and so did everybody when they started any new venture Mm. or did something that was groundbreaking or different or a huge shift for them, um, you know, with the, with the gain that comes with change inevitably comes some loss as well. Yes. So there's something about knowing what you're willing to lose or risk and let go of. And there's also something about having the courage uh, when there are no guarantees that uh, what you're going to do is going to work out as you expect it to. Yes. Yes, because almost always, certainly my experience is it never turns out how I expected it to, but it always turns (laughs) out well, largely because my expectations were always limited by my previous understanding. And there's something about support too. I think that, you know, uh, there's many kind of pros and cons. Something that the internet has made possible is to reach out to people and connect with people on a similar path in ways that was never possible before. And there is, you know, whatever you're doing, even if you're wanting to bring your unique approach to it, there will be people doing something similar. There will be others walking a similar path and to to reach out and to share ideas to get support or even just to feel connected to people and just listen depending on what people's preference is I think that's that's a huge thing too to get that encouragement and that kind of spark that comes from the engagement yes and have a sense of community because community is Mm. what what sustains us as human beings we Mm. are communal beings Mm. Mm. and that Mm. yes and I'm surprised again in lockdown at how much connection was possible over Zoom. Um, mm. It wasn't the same as being in the room, but it wasn't so far different that 
it didn't uh-huh. count. Yeah. So, yeah, so, it's yeah. extraordinary. I've been working via Skype and Zoom, well, Skype for um, some years now with clients in different parts of the world. Yeah. And we do some really profound and, and moving work yeah. uh, over Skype, which I would never have, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. I said, no, it's just, just, just not possible. You have to be with a person in the room, yeah. but clearly you don't. Yeah. <laughs> and, and therefore you don't have to spend many tons of carbon dioxide moving from one side of the planet to the other. Exactly. Yeah. Thing. You know, yeah, we've been talking about what becomes possible, yes. you know, as, uh, coming out of lockdown. That's another thing, isn't it? The way we move around. Yeah. Yeah. Or whether we move around. Yes. Discovering we don't need to move around as mm. much. Mm-hmm. It's great. Well, Jill Coombs, thank you so much. I think we're... At the end of our hour, that has been fantastic. I would really love to talk to you again about Trembling Warrior and and the game, your other two books, which, if we can, we'll book for some other part of season four of the podcast. But in the meantime, thank you so much. And everybody out there, I will put links to Jill's website and to the book in the show notes so you can go and explore. Thank you. So that's it for another week. Huge thanks to Jill for giving it a second go, and for her ability to shape ideas in ways that are so inspiring. She has a clarity of thought that I find really easy to follow, and I hope you do too. As I said, there will be links to all of her work in the show notes. Do read her books. They are genuinely inspiring. We'll be back next week with another conversation. And if you have any ideas of people that you'd like to hear on the podcast, do get in touch. You will get hold of me at manda at accidentalgods.life. And in the meantime, thank you as always to Caro C for the sound engineering, the sound production for multitasking on all of the sound and for making the music at the head and foot of the podcast. Thanks to Faith Tillery for being the other half of the creative team that is Accidental Gods and for designing the website. If you want to come and visit us, That address again is accidentalgods.life. You will find the show notes there, the other podcasts, the visualizations and meditations in the pandemic resources section, and access to the Accidental Gods membership program, which is our best attempt at a structured training which will give you the best hope of really making a genuine, grounded, wholehearted connection to the rest of the web of life and to yourself with that sense of growing coherence, in order that you can learn how to ask for help and hear clear, concise, coherent, credible answers, so that all of us can start to ask for the help that we need to make the world the place that it could be. So if you know of anyone who would like to be active in creating that new world that our hearts know is possible, do send them the link. And in the meanwhile, that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.